One story in today's podcast may be disturbing for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Operation Amigos podcast. I'm Megan Jensen. And I am Ryan Jensen. And today we have our first guest, and we're super excited. Her name is um, Dean Carolina Nunez, and she is a dean of associate dean of faculty and curriculum at um, the Brigham Young University J. Reuben Clark Law School. I don't know if I should say BYU Law School or the whole name, <laughs> but that's the whole name. And we're super excited. Um, she kind of came on my radar when I was I was looking through the the online version of the BYU alumni magazine, and there was part of a part of her BYU devotional from 2018. Back in 2018, she gave a BYU devotional called um, "Loving Our Neighbors," and so from that um, article, I I went and listened to the whole devotional, and it was fantastic. And so um, I wrote her an email and I asked her if she would please be a guest on our podcast, on our fledgling podcast. And she said yes. So um, like I said, she's the Associate Dean of Faculty and Curriculum and a Professor of Law at Brigham Young University's J. Reuben Clark Law School. She researches and writes about immigration law, citizenship, and immigrant rights with a specific emphasis on undocumented immigrants. Professor Nunez's articles have been published in the Southern California Law Review, Wisconsin Law Review, and Utah Law Review. Her commentary on immigration-related current events has appeared in the Deseret News, the Salt Lake Tribune, on BYU Radio, and KUER. Dean Nunez also co-founded the J. Reuben Clark Law School's Refugee and Immigration Initiative, through which law students provide legal assistance to women and children detained in an immigration detention center in southern Texas. As part of the initiative, law students travel to Texas for an intensive one-week clinic in which they prepare detained women for interviews with asylum officers, help research for and draft immigration court documents, and provide other legal assistance. In 2017, second- and third-year law students recognized Dean Nunez as Professor of the Year. An active member of the Legal Academy and her local community, Dean Nunez participates in many organizations. She sits on the governing board of the Utah Center for Legal Inclusion, is a member of the Association of America Law Schools Committee for the, ooh, the member of the Association of American Law Schools Committee for the Recruitment and Retention of Minority Law Teachers and Students, that's a mouthful, and was recently appointed a member of the Utah Advisory Committee for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. She also served as a member of the founding governing board for the Utah chapter of the U.S. National Committee for UN Women, which supports international programs aimed at social, political, and economic equality for women and girls. So she has done lots of amazing things. Oof. Dean Nunez. <laughs> all, all of this is to say she's not just someone with a random opinion on Twitter. No, she's not. She's no. amazing. Yes. So Dean Nunez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I love those things. And I love that you're so involved in social issues because I feel that people are so important. And you really get in there with people and hear about their problems and about the things that they're going through and try to help them. So... We are so excited to have you. And Ryan hasn't said anything. Ryan, you're here. Don't be invisible. No, this is... <laughs> uh, 
I think that, you know, for, for as impressive as that is, Dean Nunez, the experiential learning is, is a big thing for me. And I think that that's one of the, the most important things that you bring to the table is the, the actual experiences that you've had with people. Uh, because from, from my personal experience, and, and um, I don't know if you listened to our, our last episode or not, but we talked about that. My, my experience or my perspective changed a lot when when the individuals who we lived around and with changed. Uh, and and so being around individuals whose experience and, and life had been different than my own caused a, a lot of shifts for me and my mentality. And so um, we wanted to give you an opportunity to, to maybe share a little bit of your background, um, where you were born and, and what your experience has been um, prior to really taking this on as, as a passion of yours. Yeah, well, you're, you're very kind. And you know those bios are designed to make you look and sound better than you are. But, um, <laughs> but I, do take, <laughs> I, I do take very seriously um, the idea of um, learning from people with other experiences. And I think at the end of the day, so much of who we are really is shaped by our experiences. And if we understand each other's experiences, we, we understand each other better. So I'm happy to share a little bit about uh, my experience and, and um, I hope that it, it's meaningful and helpful to understanding who I am and maybe why, why I've engaged in some of the activities that I have over the last few years. So I was, um, I was actually born right, right here where I'm sitting in, well, not this very chair, but in Provo, <laughs> um, Utah. And, and funny enough, I have three children and all three of my children were born in the very same hospital that oh, wow. I was born in. Um, my, my father is from Venezuela and he um, he's Catholic. And when he when it was time for him to go to college, his parents really wanted him to go to the U.S. for college. But they were also kind of worried about setting their young son free in the United States and, and worried about all the things he might encounter. Um, and so they were looking for a place that they considered uh, safe for him. And they heard about this wonderful place called Provo, Utah, where there was no alcohol, there was no sex, there were no drugs, and they sent him here to BYU. And so my dad came to BYU as a, as a young, young Catholic, and um, that's, where he, that's where he met my mom. So I was born just as my dad was finishing up his last year at BYU, and then shortly after that, we moved um, back to Venezuela. So I was just a few months old when we moved there. And I grew up, wow. my early childhood years were in um, a city called, well, in the city and in the outskirts of Maracaibo. And Maracaibo is, um, that area is a heavy petroleum industry area. And my dad was in the petroleum industry. So I actually grew up on petroleum camps surrounding Lake Maracaibo. And we lived on, in um like these, I don't know, maybe like trailers on stilts. You couldn't really build them into the ground because there's just so much petroleum wow. <laughs> there. So in my backyard, there was an um, an oil well, a pump there and all over the place. And that those were my my very, very early years were spent, were spent in those oil camps. Wow, that's so interesting. So how long did you live there? How old were you when you actually left that area? Um, of Venezuela. Did you go to a different part of Venezuela or did you immediately move to the U.S.? We, um, after living in the petroleum camps for a few years, we ended up in the actual city of 
Maracaibo. And that's uh, Venezuela's lar second largest city. Uh, my, my dad is actually from Caracas. And okay. so I have lots of memories of the road trip to Caracas to see uh, my abuela and my abuelo who lived mm -hmm. there in Caracas. Um, but I was about nine years old when my parents uh, got divorced. And after that, what I would do is I would spend a school, the school year in the U.S. with my mom, and then I'd spend the two to three months of vacation, summer vacation, with my dad, and I did in Venezuela, and wow. I did that um, throughout all of all of my schooling, all of college, and um, even after my first year of law school, I went back to went back to Venezuela. So yeah. I spent a lot of my childhood was going back and forth a lot. So. Yeah. So so did it feel like home to you? What place felt more like home to you? Was Venezuela more home to you or was the U.S. more, more home? You know, it, it all felt like home to me. And, um, you know, I think some people, when they ask me about my childhood, I think they might think, oh, that's so sad. Your parents got divorced and you had to go back and forth a lot. And I have only beautiful memories of my childhood. I, um, I felt very much at home in Venezuela. And actually when I would return after my parents divorced, my dad moved to Caracas. So when I returned, I spent all my, all my time in Caracas after my parents divorced. And I have very, very intense childhood memories from, from those days in Venezuela. I felt like it was home. Um, I loved everything about it. I love being with my dad. I love being with uh, with the food that I love and with <laughs> my family and with the weather that I love. Caracas is like a perennial 72 degrees all year, all year round. So it's pretty wow. ideal. And then when I came home, I had my mom and I love being with my mom and I love my mother's family's traditions. And I just felt like I got the best of two beautiful worlds. So I absolutely loved my childhood. I, th I think there are probably people who are listening and they might hear what you're saying. And that's a very different Venezuela than what uh, what people may see on the news today. Um, so so in a way, you know, how do you feel about having had that opportunity to live there during that time period compared to what uh, is portrayed today in the news as happening in Venezuela? Yeah, it's like a very different it's actually really, I get really sad when I read the news about Venezuela. So Venezuela right now is, uh, I would say, bordering on a failed state. Yeah. Um, there have been shortages of food. There have been shortages of medical equipment and, and um, medicines. Uh, there, uh, The petroleum industry, which is actually the lifeblood of Venezuela, has declined tremendously. There's been no investment in infrastructure. So in a lot of parts of Venezuela, there isn't even... Um, electricity 24 hours a day. Um, Caracas still has uh, more investment in infrastructure, um, but, but the country has declined so much. And when I read about the, the suffering and the homelessness and the hunger and the illness, um, I almost can't, I really can't finish reading um, news articles because it feels like, I don't know, I don't even know what to compare it to, but it just feels like something so beautiful from your past that just that just fell apart. Oh, so, so of course sad. I feel, I, of course I feel lucky that I experienced Venezuela before that, but I also just feel so, so profoundly sad for the number of people that are suffering today. Right. You know, there, there's no comparison 
that you can adequately make um, between locations and and um, suffering is suffering and and you know as, as we talk more about your your professional experience I think some of that may come out too because I think that drives us to to have some of the passions that we do um, but but part of that experience with what's going on in Venezuela um, was exacerbated by a uh, an election and there were two individuals who felt like they were now both president and and now something similar is happening in the United States <laughs> do you see similarities and are there are there things there that you think oh man I, I already went through this once I don't want to go through this again so what I what I would say is that um, nothing is guaranteed I think it's very easy to um, take for granted peace and stability and the rule of law. Um, and at the end of the day, those depend entirely on humans, on us, yeah. right, to uphold it, to uphold the rule of law. And it can change so, so quickly. Um, I've heard all sorts of comparisons of different kinds, right? Just a variety of things uh, when people talk about Venezuela and talk about U.S. politics. And I guess the only thing that I would add is is just that, that things can change so, so quickly. And the rule of law is is what saves us from that. And um, I teach, you know, I teach the law school and um, I'm teaching right now first year tort students. And I think they always get annoyed because I ask them. So we read cases and I always ask them, what's the procedure of the case? What are the motions that got made? What did the judge deny? What did the judge grant? And they, I think they sort of get sick of these procedural questions. But I've told them, I think procedures are what we have to look at because it's the procedures that make sure that things go well. And so I think it's really, really important to have good procedures and good rules and to have faith in those rules and, and abide by those rules. Right. It's scary to think that at any time, you know, our country could, like, like you said, there's no guarantee. Um, and something at any time could happen to change this country into something completely different that we might not recognize. So it's good to recognize, it's good to realize those things that it all depends on us um, as citizens of this country. Now, I will say I am optimistic, and, and I, I'm not always optimistic. I feel like I wake up optimistic every day, and then at <laughs> night I'm not as optimistic as I was in the morning, yes. but, but I continue to wake up optimistic. And, there, you know, this summer, maybe it was this summer. Actually, it wasn't. It's been almost a year now. There's a, um, there's a documentary. It's a Ken Burns Vietnam documentary um, that was on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on. And I watched that. It's, you know, several, several episodes. It's very, very long, um, very detailed. And after watching that and seeing um, and having a little glimpse into what our country experienced and the divisiveness and the division that happened during that time, mm -hmm. I thought, if we can get through that, I think, I think we can do this, can right? Do I think this, that the yeah. division we experience now, I think we can heal from it. I hope so. And yeah. I wake up every morning thinking we can. Yeah, Us I too. agree. Yep. I agree. And I feel like that's part of what this whole mission of Operation Amigos that we have felt um, kind of determined to start is is just about creating dialogue between people that are different, that don't have the same experiences, whether it's through their opinions or their life experiences or the challenges that they face day to day. Um, and I feel like that can change 
that can change things so much when people start talking and when you start recognizing that someone's experience is not like your own and that there's a reason they think the way they do. And so that leads me into my next question. Um, Did your experiences in Venezuela have anything to do with your decision to become a lawyer? What was it that that kind of drove you to to what you're doing now? You know, people ask me that a lot. Um, You know, why, why did you decide to become an attorney? And I don't know that I had a very I, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have a grand plan. Um, I, after I graduated from high school, um, I came to BYU undergrad and, um, and I sort of was trying to figure out what I would major in. And I think my experiences of living, kind of straddling two different cultures, two different continents, two different countries did play into my decision uh, for my undergraduate education. And I studied international law um, with an emphasis on, um, it was international studies, emphasis on international law and diplomacy. And I think I I envisioned myself as um, somehow trying to um, bridge countries, right? Communication between and among uh, countries. Uh, While I was in, in my undergrad, I, um, I had this kind of idea that maybe I would want to go to law school. And to be quite honest, part of it was that I was kind of afraid of graduating and going into the real world. (laughs) (laughs) I, I thought, you know, I really like school. I really like learning. I really like being you know, you, you you go from high school to college and you're suddenly surrounded by people you've never met before and people with totally different stories and different backgrounds and professors who I just looked up to. Um, and I loved that and I didn't want it to end. So so to be completely honest, that was part of my um, interest in law school. And then I start, I visited a few law school classes and, and I was sold. Um, the style of learning and sort of the discussion that happened in class seemed like like exactly what I wanted to do. And and it is exactly what we've been talking about, which is sharing experiences and analyzing things from different perspectives. Right. And that uh, was very attractive to me. That's great. Um, so now turning to kind of the big thing, the big thing that I am just so curious about in, in your work as an attorney and as um a professor at BYU Law School, you take students down to an immigrant detention camp in Dilly, Texas. How did yes. that start? How did that um, become something that happens every year for you? Yeah, um, so I remember um, I was, you know, I had been teaching at the law school for a while, and then during the Obama administration, um, the administration started uh, detaining immigrant families from Central America who were seeking asylum in the United States. Mm -hmm. And before the Obama administration, um, when families were apprehended at the border, they were basically given what's called an NTA, a notice to appear. So they were let into the country with this notice to appear. The idea was that they were going to appear before a judge and Uh, plead out their asylum case. Mm -hmm. So that's what normally happened. But during the Obama administration, um, they were instead, families were put in detention. And so you, um, 
they would separate the uh, the male members of the family who would go to a male detention center and, and the women and children would go to what's called a family detention center. And there they would basically have to make a threshold showing that they were, um, that they could successfully plead an asylum case before they were released. Um, and there weren't really enough detention facilities for that. And so I would read the news and I would see photos of where these women and children were being held. And they were in Kevlar, ta- in Kevlar tents, um, in the desert, um, or in repurposed uh, facilities of one kind or another. And um, I just thought, this seems crazy, right? These are families that are, are fleeing violence. What's happening? And so I saw, I had a friend um, who, she's a colleague at another law school who had been going to help uh, immigrants in these, in these makeshift detention centers. And she would record basically, I think it was a little podcast where she would tell about her experiences while she did it. And I would listen to that and I would have two feelings. The first feeling was I have got to do something to help. And the second one was this sounds so hard and depressing. I don't want to do that. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, just opposite feeling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I kind of put it off for probably for maybe 18 months to two years. And then just a bunch of things fell into place that made it impossible for me to say to no. Ignore, right? It was yeah. like, the yes, the <laughs> universe was saying, go, go, go. And uh, a colleague of mine at the law school, uh, Kip Augustine Adams, she said, I'm going to, let's do this, right? I'm going to take my family. That's her speaking. So she was going to take her husband and her son. And she said, you come too. And then if we can work it out, if, if we think we can do it, let's start taking students. Wow. So uh, we went and, and it really ch- changed my life. I mean, um, completely changed my life. And then we started taking students once a semester, um, though we haven't been able to do it these last few times due to a combination of current administration policies and um, COVID. So we're kind of waiting. Oh my goodness. So what are a couple of the most moving life altering experiences that you've had as you've worked at that detention camp? What, what things have stuck with you? Or if there's, if there are a couple of experiences that have stuck with you the most, what, what would those be? Yeah, there, there are a few, um, so one, uh, there are probably two stories that clients have told me that I, that I remember um, and that I, I think about all the time. And one was from my first trip. And, and the, that first trip there was just uh, a little bit surreal because what you do is you're, you're interviewing women um, and you're basically asking them to recount the worst moments of their lives, right? And there's, again, this strange tension the worse the story they tell, the more likely their asylum claim might be granted in the end, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this weird, as someone tells you a story, it, the more horrible it is, the more likely it's successful. And so you're sort of grateful for that. But of yeah. course, how terrible that someone had to live through that. And and the more ordinary the life seems to be without a lot of violence you sort of are cheering that this person hasn't had to live through all of this but inside you know that this might mean that this person and their family right don't get let in and despite very real real reasons for wanting to be here so um one of the first people that i interviewed um she she sat across from me and she was 
she was telling me about um, what had happened to her. She she lived in a um, a little building where there was like a convenience store um, on the first floor, and she and her husband and her two daughters um, slept upstairs just above this store. And there was a staircase that came down from the residence part of this little building down into the the little shopping area. And every morning they would take they would walk together to walk their older daughter to school their younger daughter was still not in school and and the younger daughter would come back with them and they'd open the shop uh, for business and one day after dropping off their daughter at school they came to uh, the shop and um, there was a note that had been slipped under the sort of gated part the gate that protected the entry into the building and her husband grabbed the note and opened it and was sort of hiding it from this woman Mm -hmm. from this this client who, who's telling me this. And she said she tried to look over his shoulder and he just kind of brushed her off and said, you know, it's, it's some sort of a prank. But she did notice a date and a time printed on it, um, handwritten actually. And um, he just said, don't worry about it. And so she didn't. And, um, you know, about a week passed and they had come home from dropping off their older daughter at school just as they did every day. And the husband said at about noon, which was the time that she had seen, and it was the and it was the date that she had read. And he said, "Go, go upstairs uh, with the youngest daughter. Go upstairs, lock the door, and don't come down until until I tell you to do that." And um, so she and her daughter locked themselves in, and she just waited. And then she heard four gunshots. Oh my goodness! And uh, she didn't wait to be to come out. She just immediately rushed down the stairs, where she found her husband lying in a pool of blood, and oh. he had been shot four times. And their little daughter, who I believe was four at that time, um, is seeing all of this. Right? She oh. had just rushed down the stairs with her mom, and just leaving the building were these armed gang members who looked at her and with their hands made the signal kind of like, we see you, we know you, oh. you're next. That was, that was what she got from it. And um, the little daughter ran up to, ran to her, her father's body. And um, with all the innocence of a four-year-old, she, she thought that if she could just put her dad's blood back into him, oh. that he would be okay. And so, so she tried tried to do that, and um, within 24 hours, I believe, uh, she had she had left. <laughs> She'd left this, the town and was headed north um, to come to the United States. And she was sobbing as she's telling me this. And at yeah. this point, I'm sobbing oh. listening to this, right? Um, and I just thought, how. <laughs> Oh How can goodness. I help this woman? And and there are things that I can never fix, right. right, for this woman that nobody will be able to fix. And I think about her all the time. The good news oh. is that she was was released from the detention center, so she did make the threshold oh, showing. Um, but I I don't know what has happened to her case. Um, wow, since, that's since then. That's horrifying, and I I I feel like it's so important. Even though it is horrifying, I feel like it's so important for people to hear this is the kind of thing that people are fleeing. They're not leaving their homes because they think it will be fun to leave their homes. They, uh, they are leaving because there are horrendous things happening that are basically forcing them to leave. And, and so I think it's important to, to know that this is what's happening. And this is why so many people are spilling over into our, 
into our borders because they they have you know I I, I recently read a book it's called um, We Are Not From Here by Jenny Torres Sanchez and it's about three kids from Guatemala who leave because of of a situation very very similar to that and um, it was it was heart wrenching it was heart wrenching and yeah. it's you know based on stories that are true things that really happen every day and i have to tell you megan that i'm uh, that is um, a story that doesn't have quite the level of violence as some others yeah, some that i others. would be afraid I'm to sure. record on your podcast i'm sure <laughs> yes i'm sure there are some that are just unspeakable um yeah. and the fact that a fellow human beings are going through these things is just it's it's what softens my heart and makes me think the same thing that you think I have to do something, but what, you know, what, what can we do to help? When, when I hear these stories and and sadly, you know, that, that story that you share and and the story that Megan read in a book, those are not singular events. They're, they're sadly not unique. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason there are so many people down there um, being held in those detention centers and, and wow, I, I can't imagine being the person who chooses whose story and whose experience is worse <laughs> the most than another. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's a terrible position to put anybody in to, to make those kinds of decisions. But part of, part of the experience that you have in, in law um, involves looking back at, at precedents in history and, and looking at the treatment of other groups, um, whether it's African-Americans, Native Americans, the Chinese immigrants or Hispanic immigrants. Um, I, I wonder if in all of these experiences that you have, both in study and, and personal, personal experience, what do we keep missing as a people in our history that's resulting in history repeating itself, um, bo- both in the United States and out of it? And how can we, how can we stop that from happening more? You know, it's a good question. And I think part of, and this is just a human thing, but part of it is that we, um, we tend to think of our current circumstances as unique. And that's what makes us less likely to look back at other episodes in history, because we, we are skeptical that they are similar, right? Mm. We don't realize it. And um, one thing that I do early on in my immigration law class is um, we talk, we talk about citizenship, and we talk about um, there's a case in which um, uh, there's a there's a man who is the children of two immigrants from China, and this was during the period of time when um, Chinese immigrants could never naturalize; they could never become mm-hmm. citizens. But this this man was born to those two parents in the U.S., and the question was, does this person get U.S. citizenship since he was born in the United States, and the U.S. Constitution says that everyone born in in the U.S. is a citizen, does he get citizenship despite the fact that he is Chinese, right? Because um, we even had a a ban on Chinese immigration. And and the court said, yes, that he he was a citizen. Um, And and as we talk about that case, I read the students' quotes um, from senators, um, U.S. senators, when they were arguing about how um, the citizenship clause uh, might be interpreted, and people are worried about. There's a there's a great quote from a um, a senator in in Pennsylvania, and by great I just mean it's so relatable to today. And this senator talks about 
these people just come, uh, you know, to our country because they they just want jobs and they're wandering around in gangs and they don't obey the law. And I asked my students who they think the senator is talking about. And they always think it's modern and that it's referring to, I don't know, immigrants from Mexico mm-hmm. or immigrants from Central mm-hmm. America, because that's who they hear about. Right. And it's actually talking about the Roma people. Um, and that's who the senator is worried about. But it's the same arguments mm-hmm. every single time. Right. And so I think if we could realize that we are not that our circumstances are not unique and that we we could learn from our past, just being open to that might help us not have the sense of alarm, I think, that we often have with immigration. I think people are alarmed by immigration. Right. When So you tell that story, and, and it just reminded me, uh, you know, a, a few years back, I had an opportunity to interview David McCullough. And I asked him, um, I asked him what, what he would tell us. And, and this is probably 10 years ago, you know, so it, it, it predates a lot of the challenges that we see right now. But I said, you know, in, in all the things that you have written, in all the history you've studied, uh, what, what's the one thing that you hope that your readers understand uh, about history? And he said, he said, uh, first off, that he, he doesn't get asked that kind of question very often. Um, so, so he had to think for a second. But he said, you know, when I look back, uh, he said, I, I know how fallible these leaders were that I write about. I know how fallible George Washington was and Adams was and Jefferson was. And he said, and, and I hope that people will read these stories not to feel that the, the history of those men is diminished or that those leaders is diminished, but to recognize that they don't have to be perfect themselves to make a difference. And, yeah. and so when, when you say that we look at history and we feel like, well, we're, we're different, or when we look at our situation and say, well, our situation is different, it's not like that situation, that, that we're potentially diminishing our own role in making a positive change um, that could result in fewer people suffering or going through the hard things they're going through. Yeah, and I like to think that it actually doesn't take much. It doesn't take much in the way of shared values, very little, right? We just have to share a few basic, basic values to make, to be able to come together on some solutions. Um, yeah. And I, and I hope we can, right? I, I think that one of our, well, especially here in Utah, you know, there are so many that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in our history, we also have that immigrant experience, you know, crossing, well, people who crossed oceans to get here to the United States, but then were driven from place to place to place because of religious discrimination. And last um, Pioneer Day, I just had such a feeling of, today I'm celebrating my pioneer father who came from Mexico. He, he is an immigrant and he is a pioneer and I feel that it, when we look at it this way and find some common ground, things change. You know, it, it's different when you think about Pioneer Day in Utah not being just about the Mormon pioneers, but about any pioneer in your family who has had to, to do something hard, to do something new, to do something that no one else has done. That's what these people are doing. They're leaving their homes that maybe no one else in their family has left before and trying to find something better for their families and I think it just takes like you say it doesn't take much it just takes a little bit to kind of 
turn our minds and our hearts to find that common ground. And once we find yeah. it, things can change. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, people crossing planes, it occurred to me just now, and I don't know why I've never thought about this. Probably there were plenty of people who, for example, didn't speak English well right. on those planes, yes. right? They had yes. just arrived. Um, they were, they were um, pioneers and immigrants in every sense of the mm -hmm. word. Um, but it is, it's so hard, I guess, for us to see for us to see that until right. it really strikes you, right? Right. Yeah. Until it's you going through it or your family going through it, it's hard to, it's hard to see. And so, so going into that a little bit, um, I was reading a book and I won't say which one, but it was a book that um, it made me almost start crying because I was so angry. It was a book where, and I, I think I mentioned this on our first episode, where somebody the the character in the book lives in Texas and out of the goodness of his heart he would point illegal immigrants to the right office to get the correct papers so that they could stay in the country legally and i was so angry when i read that because i thought this is not how it works and this is the problem when people say just do it the right way and it'll be fine like it's getting a driver's license <laughs> like it's going to an office right. to get a driver's license it's not yeah. easy it is in in so many cases, it is just impossible for people to, quote, do it the right way. So so my question is, um, for you, do you see some kind of a solution? You know, there's things always thrown back and forth in our lawmakers will write a law, but then it doesn't get, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't pass. It doesn't and get it heard, doesn't let alone passed. Yeah. Let alone pass. Yeah. So, so in you, in all of your work, and in, in how you see the laws working now, um, what changes do you think could be made that would provide a solution? So um, I totally recognize this myth out there, right? Where yeah. people say, oh, well, they just need to do it right, do it right? right? What I hear all the time is, <laughs> oh, undocumented immigrants, they just need to leave, go home, and then do the right paperwork right. to come. Right? And then come That's back. That's all they need no to do. Deal. <laughs> and come right back. And there are about a thousand and one ways, reasons that that just doesn't yeah. cannot happen and there for for most people in the world there is there is no legal avenue yep. for coming to the exactly. united states there are simply no avenue for mm -hmm. that but but here is what is amazing about that myth if people think that that is true then couldn't we make that then why couldn't reality? it be right, <laughs> right? Exactly. if if people think that you can do that and they're not running around begging for that to stop, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, some people are, some people say yeah. stop all immigration, right, that's right. fine. But there are a large number of people who are thinking that's how the system works and they just want people to do that. Well, why couldn't we make that happen? So I think one of the, the biggest um, changes that I think, I think we could get on board with as a compromise is to have more avenues for immigrating to the United States. Um, yeah. I think uh, employers, need uh, people from other countries to come come and take jobs. And the reason I know we need them is because employers employ them, whether yeah. they have paperwork or not. That mm -hmm. is what actually right. is happening. That's what's happening. Right? They need the workers. That is what's yeah. happening. And so um, if we have legal immigration, more legal immigration available, I think that that fixes a lot of problems. Now, some people um, will argue, yes, but 
won't that take, you know, they'll say, I'll take American jobs if more people come. And and again, I go back to, but it's what's happening. And if we have legal, if we have legal immigration, more of it, then we will have less likelihood of employers exploiting immigrants who don't have documentation, which is what drives Mm -hmm. down wages. Wages would stay higher if everything was above board. Above board, exactly. And in turn, um, welfare needs would go down because people could work legally. They would be able to provide for themselves. And that's one of the, the arguments that I hear a lot too is that, oh, but then, you know, everyone's gonna come here and be on welfare. Well, so many of them are because they can't work legally. And so they end up needing assistance. And I feel like all of this goes hand in hand. If if things were made so that they could be here legally, so many of the actual problems would decrease, in my mind. At yeah. Least. <laughs> yeah. And so and so many of the problems are also fairly mythical. Yeah. Um, if you do a study on how many um, how many immigrants uh, undocumented immigrants are on welfare. It's actually very, very, it would be very difficult because they're not eligible for any federal means tested benefits. Yeah. Um, so unless it's a state benefit mm-hmm. uh, that is particular to a state mm-hmm. um, or if it's an emergency, emergency medical care is offered right. um, or otherwise, otherwise, uh, I guess through a fraudulent ID, I, the welfare right. would be possible. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the other thing I hear is um, free health care that, you know, they're getting health care again. That's not uh, really part of it. I hear that, you know, undocumented immigrants don't pay taxes. Well, oh, they actually, do. They, they don't get them back. They do. Is the thing. <laughs> they never get them back. <laughs> they never exactly. get them back, but they pay them. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many myths out there. And so it's hard to, it's hard to, um, to kind of bust all of those myths without, while sounding what's the word I'm looking for while well, sounding like it, that really is the truth. You know, there's so much out there right now yeah. that you don't know what's true and what's not true. And I think it's so important as we're talking to people like you who are actually out there on the front lines. No. And you know, you know, the actual facts. And so I think it's so important to kind of get the word out there about how things actually work. So Dean Nunez, given everything you just said, the, the, the myths, uh, the mythical nature of this entire topic, um, and, and the fact that people believe things are one way and um, and they're actually a different way, and uh, everything that we've just talked about, all of that leads me to believe there has to be some place where, other than calling you and doing an interview, th- <laughs> there has to be a way that we can we can as a people learn about this. So. If you if you were to give people a, a resource or a couple of resources, where would you say that we can go to learn um, what what this is, what the process is actually like? Um, learn about immigration law generally, so that we can be more informed. This is a good question. I get this question a lot, and I'm never very good at answering it because <laughs> immigration law is very very complicated. Mm. Um, there's it's very hard to summarize it into um, something that that someone without legal training is going to understand, right, how right. immigration law works. That being said, um, there are a few things that I think that if if we all did more of, that we would understand better. And the first is is what you guys are trying to do, and that is to listen to each other's stories, right? Talk to immigrants. What was their experience like? And why was the experience of your friend who was a doctor from Canada so different from the experience 
of the woman who fled violence, right, yeah. in, in Central America. I think just kind of understanding that on a very basic level um, is really helpful. Um, there are also lots of um, immigrant advocacy groups that put out primers online about immigration. Um, I don't have a ready list in my mind, but I'd be happy to, to send send you a list yeah, uh, later if you have great. a website. We can, we can put it in the it. show notes yeah. afterward. Yeah, so I could send some resources like that. And then there are a few uh, books out there that do explain um, the law and kind of interweave it with stories. One that I really like is um, called Americans in Waiting, and it's by Hiroshi Motomura. Uh, this is, it's still pretty like law intense. So it would have to be someone who really likes that, mm -hmm. that would that would stay engaged, I think. But it he starts with the story of his own family. Um, his his family are immigrants from from Japan, um, and you know he goes through um, Japanese internment during World War II, and kind of ties all his family stories into immigration law developments that are happening uh, contemporaneously, which I think is is kind of a nice a nice yeah. way to read about it. That's a great resource. I I've been thinking about you know trying to put together a list of, of books that, you know, do show kind of this authentic experience of being an immigrant and what you actually have to go through. The hard part is that, as you say, all the legal things are so hard to get through sometimes, just the hoops that they have to jump through. And, and so much of it isn't exciting. It's just process. It's just yeah, the red exactly. tape. It's just the... But when you realize yep. how much they have to go through just to be here legally... If there is an avenue, even it's um, right. It it kind of changes things, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's some big picture things that I think it would be great for everyone to understand. I mean, most people don't know that we have a cap on how many people from any particular country can enter the United States, which means that if you are from a country that has a lot of immigrants coming to the U.S you may actually have to wait years mm -hmm. and years, like 23 years right. before you can actually immigrate just because there's a cap on how many people from each country can enter can in any here. one year. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, okay, so we've heard a lot on the news about um, the conditions at internment camps. And one thing that I am curious about is, did you see when you were there some of these horrific circumstances like what they call the freezers and and keeping lights on 24 7 are those are those kind of things the things that you saw while you were there or were you in places where you wouldn't have seen those so conditions? i so we um we had been taking students to the um to an immigration detention center i think it's called the south texas family residential center um outside of San Antonio. And that that detention center is where people go to after they've passed through okay. um, what are called what are called the freezers or the right. dog kennel, la yelera and yelera. la perrera. Right. Yeah. But we do ask we do ask our clients and keep notes on what they experienced mm -hmm. there. So I did hear lots and lots of stories about what was happening there and what you read in the news is consistent with what our clients okay. describe as happening. In addition to the, the thing that really really gets to me is um how they're yelled at mm. and treated by the people that are um, running um, those mm. those facilities. I think there's just 
I, there's just such a resistance to to these immigrants and, and it shows all the way through the process. And, wow. and I think that the women feel like they're not believed. Um, yeah. And I think that's why it's hard for them sometimes to imagine that we, um, our students, uh, me, are going to believe them mm-hmm. because every step of the way they've been told that they're lying and that it's not right. credible. Oh my goodness. So what, what would you tell someone who wants to help those who are detained, those who are in those situations right now, those who would love to be able to help, those whose hearts have been softened? What would you tell us? Um, how would you advise us that we can help at this point? Especially those of us who aren't experts in uh, <laughs> in tort. We're not. In we're law. not. We're not your students. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what a tort is, other than something I make. So, so what can I? Do? Those, what can I do? Those are good torts too. Those are good torts. <laughs> they are. Um, so, uh, I think the number one thing that you can do is um, make your voice heard and vote. Right. Um, when people will ask, well, how can we change these conditions? these conditions didn't come out of thin air. These conditions came out of laws, out of executive orders. If you don't like them, make your voice heard and vote. Vote for someone who you think has the right approach um, to immigration. And as far as hands-on help, there are a lot of organizations that use volunteers uh, for for different things. I think it would be very hard you obviously can't offer legal advice if you're not a lawyer, but there are a lot of things that um, asylum seekers need. There are shelters where they need people just to come and work in the shelters on a volunteer basis. There are uh, refugee resettlement programs where they just need like a, a mentor family, right? So you can sort of show, show this, uh, immigrant family, what it's like to live in wherever you are, help them with, basic tasks like grocery shopping, et cetera. Um, there are a lot of supplies that uh, organizations need. So for example, the project that we work through at the detention center in Texas um, has like an Amazon list of things that they need, oh, paper, pencils, pens, things that's like great. that. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of little things that actually go a long way. That's great. Well, wh- let's go ahead and we'll plan to put together a list to put in the in the notes as well so that anybody who wants to to find a resource and and do something like that will have a place to look at at kind of a list of things we can do so so i'll plan to to maybe chat with you later about all of those um if that's okay with you yeah that'd be great the nunez i love those ideas as well because so many of them uh involve something that we we can give um you know financially in time and not necessarily need to be somewhere physically which like you mentioned earlier is not something that we can all do right now we can't go out and and be doing as much face-to-face service as as some of us would love to be doing but that doesn't mean that those needs are any less real right now just because covid exists and and so these are these are great ways to help um we want to give you an opportunity as as we wrap up um to to share uh, what's, so the name of the organization, you know, that, that we're, we're trying to put together in the podcast is, is Operation Amigos. And, and the heart of this is that we believe that by becoming friends with people, um, that, that your perspective does change and that you do feel more love and understanding, empathy for each other. 
So what's the one thing that, that you would say, what's the one thing you would take away uh, if, if you were listening to this podcast and say, yeah, that, that's the one thing that can help me be a better amigo, a better friend to others today? I think it goes back to, um, to stories. Um, I think if we can listen to somebody else's story and offer our own story with, without any um, desire to judge or any desire to convince, right? Just a true exchange of stories. And if we make ourselves open to the idea of loving somebody no matter what they are about to tell you right you have to be in that place before you hear the story right. otherwise you will hear the story with judgment right you have to be open that whatever comes out of this person's mouth and you may not like it right i have i've heard lots of stories where i think my instinct is to be judgmental right. um and it takes it takes some work but if if we can get ourselves to a place that we can do that um we will have so much more understanding of others and we'll never be perfect at it, right? We'll never ever be perfect at it, but understanding is the basis of solutions. And so that to me is, is where we need to start. And so your podcast is, is awesome for, for that. Oh, thank you. I love, I love what you just said. I think listening is such a key and, and um, having an open heart when we do listen. Um, and so we just want to thank you so much for being with us today, for talking with us and um, just kind of sharing the experiences that you've had and the way they've touched your heart. And um, we really hope that that others will listen and and that we can have, you know, positive responses to sharing each other's stories. So thank you so, so much for being here again. Thank you for having me and for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Dean Nunez. We look forward to talking to you again soon and hope that uh, uh, we'll find more ways where we can interact in the future. That sounds fantastic.